When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business. Greetings of the day, my fellow listeners, and welcome to another edition of Building Better Businesses. I am your host. My name is Steve Eschbach. I own a business here in the greater Chicagoland area called Transworld Business Advisors. We are the largest business brokerage in the world, and we are the fastest growing business brokerage in the world as well. Our role is to assist business owners confidentially sell their businesses and match them up with qualified buyers. In addition to that, we also assist uh, in a couple of other ways. Number one, if you're looking to expand via the franchise model, uh, we have a sister company that can take care of that from uh, beginning to end. And we also do franchise sales among other mergers and acquisitions activities. So that's enough about me. I'm delighted today to have uh, Trevor Blake with us. And uh, just very, very briefly, I, I was going through his LinkedIn profile and, of course, his website. It's a phenomenal background. And I think the best way to summarize who our guest is, he's a serial entrepreneur and a New York Times bestseller author. But above all that, he has started three businesses and sold those. He's got three in the works. I don't even know where to begin to describe who it is you are today, Trevor, because you've done so much and you're always seemingly moving. So I'm going to let you tell me who you are today, other than the uh, serial entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author. So tell me a little bit about who you are today. I'm glad to, Steve, and thanks for inviting me. So I think the outside world sees me as a serial entrepreneur for the reasons that you've just said. So I have built and sold three decent-sized companies for a combined value of about $300 million. Um, I'm, I'm currently negotiating my fourth company, the, the exit of my fourth company, and that will be a high nine-figure deal. So that'll be my my golden day, if you like, my golden egg. Um, and I'm building two smaller companies. I'm sort of on this track because I had a corporate career and I got so frustrated in my corporate career with with all the nonsense, all the, all the corporate politics and uh, meeting madness and all that kind of stuff. And eventually, I think I just grew up and said, okay, I, I think there's a better way, a smarter way of running companies, and that's what I'm going to do. So I've structured all my companies with a virtual model. They're, they've all been 100% hub models, and I've never hired another employee, if you can, if you can consider me an employee. So I've been a one-man band in all of those businesses. And so after selling my first company, 
you know, I, I got addicted to it really, I think, but I thought I'd take some time out and I'd be, I'd, I was pacing the kitchen floor for about two weeks. And my wife said, if you don't start something new, I'm going to kill you. So I thought I better start something new. So that's when I wrote my first book, Three Simple Steps. And then that, that was so successful where, without any kind of budget behind it, um, that it inspired me to, to keep on going. So then I started my second company, third company, and then wrote my second book. And, and the second book is Seekers to a Successful Startup. And it's about that journey. It's about starting right. And, and being smart in your structure, making, making it possible for you to not to have to work 14-hour days, to, to structure your day so that you can, you can get the right combination of productive periods and the relaxation periods where that magic happens, where you get those aha moments and all that, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that's kind of who I am. So, so I, th- I think when I started out, people thought it was a crazy idea, but I think technology has changed so much in the last 20 years. This has all been just the last 20 years. Techno- you know, technology has changed so much and, and, the, and the way we do business has changed so much that I feel like I'm an idea whose time has come, really. I think there's, after everybody going through COVID and so many people being pushed into working from home, people have seen that at, not everybody likes it, but I think majority of people think, you know, this is much better than sitting in a, sitting in a boardroom, listening to the same person say the same thing to 10 different ways. You know, this is, this is a cool way of doing things. So there's a great interest in starting companies, but the, the challenge is starting right because if you do it the way you've been trained in the corporate world, it's not going to work anymore. And that's kind of who I am. So I want to take a, a rewind, if I could, down memory lane here. And uh, you have a phenomenal story about your experience with your mother. And I hope you don't mind sharing that with us, because I think that was the inspiration uh, to where you are. Normally, I ask my, uh, my guests, tell me a little bit about your childhood and how your parents and your other family members influenced you. And first and foremost, you talk about your mother. But Tell me a little bit about your childhood before you were nine and wrote your first screenplay that got rejected before you uh, proposed to Petra. And, and that's what <laughs> I, uh, you could talk about that if you want. But you were very, very motivated at age nine to write a screenplay that failed and it didn't stop you. But even before that, tell us a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing and how it got to you being where you are today. Well, I grew up, you know, I'll say poor because, you know, I didn't realize we were poor when I was a kid. But now that I'm old enough to, to look back and say, yes, we were pretty poor. So I grew up in Liverpool in a sort of concrete jungle. Um, my father was unemployed my whole life and somewhat unemployable, I have to say. And we were evicted from a flat or an apartment above a shop where we were living when I was seven. And we escaped the bailiffs and, and ended up in the countryside. And, you know, in those days, I'm talking in the, seven, in, in the late 60s now, you know, you could drive 60 miles in the UK and, and hide. The bailiffs aren't going to find you. And so we ended up, ended up uh, my youth was in a, a broken down farmhouse, which I thought was magical. It was like Chronicles of Narnia. But at the same time, unfortunately, my, my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer in the days when that was a certain, you know, death sentence. That's obviously that. And thankfully, it's, that's not the case these days. Um, and so she was given six months to live and we didn't have a vehicle. And so I was with her when she went to the hospital appointment where they made that you know, definitive uh, prognosis for her. And I will never forget it. It, stu- it stuck with me my whole life. And every time I find myself knocked back in business or something else, I always have this image in my, in my head. I remember her leaning forward in the chair because in those days, doctor on one side, patient on the other, you know. And uh, she leant forward and she said, young man, I'll decide when I'm going to die, not you. And she fought against that prognosis from my age of seven till when I was 22, and uh, she was determined. I saw her one time, you know, looking through a window, looking up at the sky. She wasn't a religious woman, but she did believe in God. And she said to God, I'll come when I'm ready. And I won't be coming until my three kids are grown up and are all safe. And I was the last to leave home. And uh, 
she was a, she was a woman of a word, but it was the look in her eyes. I always remember it was that look of indefatigable. Um, you know, she meant every word of it, every every moment of it. And so throughout my life, you know, whenever I've come up against what's when investors say your idea is crazy or this is impossible or you'll never get that much money for that company and stuff like that, that's what I remember. You know, yeah. I make those decisions, not other people. So going back then, and it sounds like you were um, motivated to be kind of uh, your, your one-man band, if you will, and be determined to get to where you are. What were your interests as a child and how have they changed? I know, I mean, every I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. Everything is founder, CEO, founder, CEO, founder, CEO. And like you said, you, uh, you started three and sold those. You got three more in the works. What were your interests back when you were a child? Was it well, not mechanics? business? Accounting, you know, just business in general? No, not, not business at all, Steve, because one of the things about being poor is you don't get to travel. And yet I used to see all these travel magazines at the time. It was, these are in the days when you couldn't, there was no online, so you couldn't book a holiday online. And so all, all the shops had these incredibly exciting, tra- colorful travel magazines with beautiful pictures of islands and all that sort of thing. And so I wanted a life of adventure. So actually, um, the only way for me to get a life of adventure was to join the Royal Navy. So um, I, just, I decided I was going to be an officer in the Royal Navy, but coming from my background, everybody, including the school counselor, including my father, including all my relatives, they just laughed at me because nobody from my side of the tracks gets to be an officer in the Royal Navy, not in those days when it was very elitist. And, um, but I made it. And so the, be- the, the good thing that happened to me was getting bullied because to run away from the bullies, I hid in the town library. And because I was hiding in the town library, I started reading biographies and I realized that History has thousands of people who feel as low as I feel at this point in time, and they found a way out. And I, that's basically what Three Simple Steps, my book, is about. It's a, the, the three main attitudes and behaviors that I observed in the biographies of all those amazing men and women through history. And I just adapted that and used it into my life. So I got into the Navy, and I traveled. And then when I left the Royal Navy, I just kept traveling. So that was my I, a life of adventure was what I wanted. I only started, I only turned to business when I was 42 years old. And that's when I said, you know what happens when you're on your 40th birthday, you kind of wake up and you go to bed the night before and you feel absolutely immortal. And then the next day, you're about, you look like you're six months pregnant and you think, I need to start taking life a little bit more seriously. So that's when I started my first company. But I think with the companies, the influence of early childhood is definitely there because I got to observe through my, my father wasn't a bad man. He just tried and failed in a lot of businesses. And I got to see why he failed. And it was always sort of cash flow management issues. He'd start something, he didn't have enough money, he didn't have a way to get credit because we, we, he didn't have a job. Uh, we didn't own a house, we were renting, although he never paid the rent as I found out when my mother died. And so he was always, that cash flow management was imprinted into my brain that you can't start like that. You've got to be smarter. And so when it was time to start my own companies, I can thank my mother 100% for giving me the determination, but I can also thank my father 100% for showing me why things don't work and, and using that observation. So it's interesting that uh, your success is basically by observing uh, what your father didn't do well. And not to say he wasn't a good man, like you said, but uh, so tell me a little bit. I mean, it seems so very, very basic. Cash flow management, more money coming in, less money going out. That's the basic tenet of cash flow management. But what are some of the key ingredients that you have found you with your three businesses and for what you've observed elsewhere? I think some of our audience members wants to know what 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 are the three or four key things that you would highlight for these business owners to pay attention to such that cash flow management is optimized. Well, I, you know, I know I'm preaching to the to the choir here with you Steve, but it's impossible to predict the path forward in business. A, a wonderful guy called George Rothman who built Amgen, you know, 60 billion dollar biotech company once said to me, 
quietly whispering to me in the back of a boardroom. I was talking about a business plan that I had and I was so cocky, you know, and uh, not realizing who he was or what he'd done. And he held up his hand. And he said, Trevor, you don't know what business you're in until you get into the business. And I didn't understand that until I started my first company. And I started going off in one direction, thinking that I was working on, on rare diseases for children. And I ended up switching onto intranasal B12 because I was in the business and someone brought the opportunity to me. Now, I, I was smart enough to know that I'm not starting a company with absolutely no money. I mean, we all hear those stories and they're wonderful stories and they're fantastic, but the ones that make it are probably one in a million. So I always work from the principle that everything's twice as complicated and takes twice as long and it costs twice as much as you anticipate. And so why make life hard for yourself? Make sure you've got a little bit of a cushion behind you. I think today cash flow is even harder because of the online uh, influence because you know I can and I do because I shop for clothes through you know an online shopping system. And so I, I can order 12 shirts, for instance, different sizes, different colors. And I can choose not to keep any of them and send all 12 back. Well, that company's had to make or buy those 12 shirts. They've had to ship it. They've got to have the system behind it to process the return. That's tough cash flow management. So it's very difficult today, I think, particularly in the online world, to start with those glorious stories of, oh, I started with 20 quid and or $20, $20, and now look how rich I am. It's harder to do that today than it used to be. So you want to make sure that you don't need huge amounts of capital, but you, capital, but you need a cushion. You need to know that there's going to be bumpy roads in the first two years, and you don't want to be stressed out worrying where that money is going to come from. You want to be focused on growth. And so if you have enough capital purely so that you can keep your mentality focused on, I always start a company with an exit in mind. So, so for me, it's always, always focusing from the day one, I've got this exit in mind, and I, I can't allow myself to lose focus of that. But if I'm stressed about you know, how can I afford the mortgage and how can I keep paying my, my, my clients, or my vendors and stuff like that. It's too much. It's unnecessary is what I'm saying. So let me uh, go back here a little bit to your comment earlier. You talked about you being a one-man band. You've owned three different companies. I would have to believe, and I've heard this from some of my other podcast guests, that some collaboration is needed from outside sources, whether it be lawyers, accountants, other key ingredient people, if you will. So you're a one-man shop, but how do you? how does that all work? With you having three businesses that you've already sold for 300, 300 million, and you have some more in the same size range, how does that all happen with you being your so-called one-man band, if you will? It's the hub model. So I'm, if I was to use a visual image of, of who I am, I'm the conductor of an orchestra. I can't play a single instrument as well as anybody else in the orchestra, but I can understand harmony. And I can conduct it so I get harmony out of it. And that's what I do with the, with the vendors. So selecting the right vendors is really important. Some work for an hour a week for, for, what, for my companies. Some work two days a week. And it's putting those teams together. But in order to make that hub model work, I have had to change my management style from the one that I was trained to be in the corporate world because I, I, I've worked in you know, the corporate hier hierarchy uh, with all the layers of management and you're always trying to impress your boss and you're always trying to show how important you are to the people you're responsible for. And all of that goes when you're in the business by yourself. There's no place for it. And so I've changed my management style from one of a supervisory style to one of trust. Because the clients and the, the, the vendors and the, and the consultants and all the people who work at or my orchestra, if you like, they know what they're doing. They know how to play their instruments and they don't need me sitting on the shoulder telling them how to, how to press the buttons. And so, or pluck the strings or anything. And so I've had to learn to back off from my previous style of, of being a supervisor. And wanting updates and it having meetings and all this nonsense, and so I, I so you have to you have to switch to a sort of mentality of trust, and I much prefer this mentality. It's so much more rewarding because they feel like they're part of something and they're contributing and they're not being micromanaged. 
So does that go along with your concept where you can turn a 14-hour day into a five-hour day and mix a little bit of the balance, work-life balance in there? And trusting people is so critical in any type of business environment. That essential relationship building skill is critically essential. Are there any other like three or four basic you know, guidelines to develop that trust? What do you look for in the people that you work for? I mean, what are basic no-nos or not work for, work with? What are the basic, you know, turn off from the initial meeting? What are the basic turn ons from the initial meeting? What are the key things from the get-go that you can really discover and determine how to move forward with that? Well, there's two things. One is going to sound politically incorrect, so I'll save that for a second. But the first, the first is trusting your intuition when you're doing the interviews, when you're when you're looking for a vendor. Is, I go by intuition. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what size the company is, it doesn't matter what what menu of services are offering for me or their experience. I I've learned through being lucky enough to be around my mother all that time. But then also, my mother introduced me to my wife, and I was married for until my wife died. I was married for 40 years. She had an incredibly strong intuition. They both did. And I was, I was in awe of that. And I've, I've, I have tools and techniques in all my courses to, to teach you intuition, to deepen. As a man, you know, if I could get 10% of a woman's intuition, I'd be the richest man on the planet. I could bottle it and sell it. So intuition is really important and more important than negotiating the right price and all this. Get the best vendor. Don't try and get the best price at the beginning. That'll, that'll help out immeasurably. And then the second thing is, and this is the politically incorrect thing, but it's something that I've applied in my life my, or my whole life. And that is that, the business world has, and well, still is, but not as much, thank goodness, is male-dominated. But I have found the most pleasurable working environments to be where the male and female energies are pretty much matched. And so, so my sales and marketing teams in the corporate world, the most successful ones that I had or managed um, were always sort of half female, half male. And, and so we had this great balance between not overanalyzing and then also having those aha moments that the, the female energy has. And it's not a, a gender comment or sex comment or anything like that. It, I really did feel it worked in harmony. And so when I'm choosing vendors, when I have when, when the vendor is led by a, a female CEO, I, I smile inwardly. I know that this is going to go well. And, um, and one of the reasons is that I find that all the BS is removed when a company is run by a female CEO or female leader. And so I try to get that balance in the, in the business. And I know we're not supposed to talk about these things and we're not supposed to, we're supposed to hire the best and not necessarily, you know, think of anyone's gender. But I find that when we get that energy balance between the linear male energy, so there's two, we give them male and female names, right? But then have nothing to do with male or female, but the male energy is very linear, very step-by-step, -step, build a runway, build a, build a freeway build a rocket to the moon, you know, it's all, all very linear and very slow. And the female energy is always very fast and spiraling. And uh, you know, I talk about this in my courses. And so, so that fast spiraling energy means that as a, as a leader, you have to be very quickly adaptable and you've got to trust your intuition and make quick decisions and, and, go, and go with that. And so when you have a team, whether it's vendors or employees, when you have a team that gets both of those right, together. I think it works magically. And that's how I'm able to work a five-hour workday and not a 10-hour workday because I'm sensible enough to get out of the people's way and just let them get on with it. So the end results are pretty much what matters. And as long as they get the job done, you don't really need to be there day in and day out no. micromanaging. That's not really necessary. So I see um, your most recent interest, of course, is oncology. And I'm sure that's related to your experience with your mother. But what are some of the other industries you have? Are they all related to health? I see uh, there's, it seems almost very varied. 
So yes, they are varied. I mean, the model works regardless of your interest. So I'm also, as you mentioned earlier, a screenplay writer, but that's not one of my companies. But I use the same tools and techniques for that too, because that's a world of rejection, just the same as business is often a world of rejection. You know, you put a business for sale and the company I'm, I'm in the process and you're in this business, so you know better than I do, but the company that I'm currently negotiating for the exit with now, you know, I was matched to 207 potential partners but I know I'm going to get 204 rejections, right? So, okay. So you're going to be prepared for all of that. And that's kind of my life. So, so, so long as you're prepared to be rejected in any industry, you'll be, you'll be fine. It's just part of the process. So, um, so uh, first of all, uh, I had a commercial pharmaceutical company that's, that was involved in, um, I bought the rights to a product that was involved in rare pediatric diseases, really difficult business model to pull off. And the reason I got into that business was, there were several large pharmaceutical companies that had cures for rare diseases, but couldn't bring the product to the market because the shareholders would go crazy because of the cost of trying to find 150 patients in the world and educate enough doctors to look for 150 patients in the world. I found a business model to do that and it worked really well. Sold up, I think, for 105.5 million. And then I got involved in a, I'd call it a management consulting organization, but I was consulting primarily to healthcare clients and that sold very, very quickly. Uh, two years later for an insane number, but I was very happy with it. And then I got involved in the oncology uh, research and development. And you're absolutely right. It was because of the experience I had with my mother. We currently have a drug in clinical trials that's showing excellent efficacy, but zero side effects. And that's what I learned from my mother is that she was she handled her cancer with such grace, but the side effects of the treatments that were sort of poured at her on a regular basis was just so debilitating, stole her womanhood and her, and her dignity. So I've always had this, uh, my, my eyes and my ears open for, for a way of finding treatments that don't do that to somebody and maintain quality of life. So we're in that space and that's why it's so popular. And I have a digital marketing company and I have um, an animal uh, sanctuary, a rescue, um, which has a unique business model because even though it's a nonprofit, it has to be run with exactly the same diligence as I would run any of my companies. And I'm also running it as a virtual company too, using using volunteers, obviously. But that again is a unique business model. You know, so we can rescue animals, we can match them with people who have a lot of love to give, but don't have a m- lot of money. And therefore, we take care of the money side of it. We pay the vet bills, pay the food, provide you know the stabling and all the rest of it. And so take away the pressure of having to look after animals, so that so the more senior people who really want to have animals are worried about the cost and what happens if I die. You know, they, they feel so protected that they have nothing but love to give the animals and the animals give it back in, in, in spades, of course. Those are the, the varied businesses that I'm involved in. So I have a question for you regarding the businesses that you have uh, started up and sold. What has been the typical time period from day one to, uh, to the exit? Are they typically the same or is it varied by wide margins? What would that be? Again, I've, there's a certain point in time when I realized that this company has so, so much potential that I'm holding it back. So I know, I know from the day I start to the day it gets to some point, I'm the best person for this company with this model in this time. And it gets to a point where I feel, okay, my baby needs to graduate. It needs to go into the hands of a company. So I think this, this one-man band model, this hub model, works up to a certain size. And I can't give you a number or, 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 you know, or anything, but it's a feeling. Uh, that's what I'm feeling right now. That's why I'm negotiating the exit of this company. The potential is so huge for this product, this treatment, that it needs to be in the hands of a big pharmaceutical company, not in little Trevor Blake's hands. So it's always feeling. So the first one was six years. So that was Qual Medical. So that was I started that with with a few hundred dollars. Learned that lesson that that's not enough, and um, 
didn't make that mistake twice. That's, that's part of life, isn't it? Don't make the same mistake twice. And then the second one was two years, just under two years, and uh, was just a phenomenal success. And this one uh, that I'm selling right now, I actually started this one alongside the other three uh, back in 2005. I realized that one of the challenges with uh, drug development is that companies don't give their scientists enough time to develop anything because it's so much pressure. So if you don't show, hit an endpoint in two years, the project's gone and it's on to the next project, the next project, the next project. Whereas I felt really strongly about this particular know-how and that we could have time. So we actually spent seven years developing this one thing. And so I was feeding it funds from my other companies. And then when it was time, I've grown it now into a serious company but now it's my baby and it's got to graduate. You know, it's very interesting, the comments you make there. And uh, the, the, the key takeaways I take from my conversation with you today is that a lot of what you base your decisions on are intuition. It's, it's how comfortable you are with people. You know, I do mergers and acquisitions and so do 500 of my colleagues at Transworld. And we basically think it's a, a numbers game. It's, you know, finance and accounting, medical valuations, but there is a huge emotional and a huge, I don't know what the word is, like a fit. It's a, a collaborative fit that also plays a huge part in when the time is right to move on to the next level. For you, it's build them up to a certain level and then move them on, right? I think that's how you've been doing your businesses uh, up to now. Is that right? It is. And I, but I think the business model helps me do that too, because there's no one to talk me out of it. Uh, and I don't, and I don't have responsibility for other people's livelihood. So it's it's a much easier decision to say, you know, um, it's time for me to sell. It's my decision. The the due diligence process is hilarious because I, it's with a big company. They have seventy people who are doing due diligence on a company that has nobody. And so, you know, one day I get a phone call and I'm vice president of manufacturing. And the next day I'm a VP finance or something like that or CFO or something. So, so it's a bit farcical at times, but that's basically it. It's much easier to make a decision to sell a company when it's only when you're the only one that's going to either enjoy the benefit or suffer the consequences. Um, Is there ever a time when you need to bounce an idea off of someone? And if that happens, who do you call? Who do well, you go to? until December, it was my wife with her intuition. So I never made big decisions without saying, what do you think of this? And she never knew what I was doing with my, in my five hours a day. She never asked me about business. And so I'd say, I'm talking to this company. And she'd either say, no, don't, doesn't feel good. Or I was thinking of hiring this guy. And she'd say, no, nah, he's bad news. You don't want to. And the, the two times in my life when I've gone against it or went against her intuition, it really hurt me financially and emotionally. And so I, I learned my lesson. Thank goodness. Now that she's not with me, it's, it's harder. But I've worked on my tools and techniques. Uh, people go to trevorgblake.com. You can easily read what those tools and techniques are on deepening my own intuition. So I have a lot more confidence in not having a need to go to the kitchen and say, Lynn, what do you think of this? So that's helped. But if I could, you know, if I would willingly give every single cent of everything that's come my way to have the opportunity to go to the kitchen and say to Lynn, what do you think of this? But unfortunately, I can't do that. Well, the good news, Trevor, is that uh, you had, you had what, 14 years, was it? 14, 14 years? 4-0. Oh, 4 zero, 40. Oh my goodness. Never mind. That's, well, there's a lot to be said about 40 years of camaraderie with, you know, the, a wife and a, and it sounds like a business uh, advisor, so to speak, when needed. And after 40 years of, I think, uh, give and take with her, I think you've probably got enough inside of you to continue on. So, <laughs> I, think so. <laughs> I think so. We're about at the end of our time, Trevor. Is there anything in our Q's and A's that we talked about here that we haven't covered that you want our audience to know about? It's a fascinating story. And one of the few people that I've uh, talked with that really puts a lot of emphasis, emphasis on intuition and gut. 
So anything else you want to tell our audience? I do think the reason I'm doing what I'm doing now, because obviously I don't need to do it, but the reason I'm doing it is I do think that this is a remarkable time. I don't think, I think history will show that there's never been a better time to reinvent yourself and start your own thing and achieve rapid financial independence. You know, the days of having to start local and then go regional, and then go national, those, those days are gone. You can zoom, for, you, there's all kinds of stories. Obviously, you don't have to search very hard on the internet to get great business stories these days. But I, I don't want people to miss this opportunity. I think it's unique in time. It's almost like the beginning of the industrial revolution in 1740. It feels like that. Everything's disrupting, everything's changing. And if you're willing to, to change with it, the opportunities will be tremendous. So that's why trevorgblake.com exists. And that's, I encourage people to go to trevorgblake.com and just drop in the rabbit hole and see where it leads. Yeah. And that's how we can find out more about you. One last question is, has this pandemic changed anything about your attitude or your philosophy of your hub way of doing things? Has anything changed because of you know the past six, 12, 18 months? Not at all. In fact, it's given me more enthusiasm and motivation to share the message that there's a different way of doing things because nothing changed for me. I actually feel a little guilty saying that sometimes because for a lot of my family and friends, things changed dramatically, but we continued and, and basically got stronger and then come out of this realizing that we are the idea whose time has come. Well, good for you. That's a great story. Thank you so much for sharing. Any other, you, you mentioned trevorblake.com is your website. That's basically where they can go to find out more about you and what you're doing, right? Yeah, it's Trevor G. Blake. Don't forget the G. Uh, so it's Trevor G. Blake, uh, it's G for George. Uh, TrevorGBlake.com, and uh, you can find out about anything. And and uh, there's a free download too, a no strings attached free download of the five hour, the practical magic of the five hour workday. And if nothing else, that's going to change the way you think about things. Well, that's so good. Thank you so much, Trevor. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing the insights. Audience, I thank you once again for listening to another edition of building better businesses and uh, stay tuned. There'll be more and Trevor will be back. I guarantee you because he's got to sell that other business and we got to find out what else he's going to go to next after that. So thanks again. Take care. Thank you, Steve. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele which in turn will build you a better business.